Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. As this show approaches its third anniversary this coming August, one of the things you can do to help support the show is to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found, or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like Apple or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time, thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about a movie that I had wanted to see but never had until I decided to do an episode about it. Because if one of the objectives I have for the show is to teach and inform listeners about 80s movies that they have never seen or have ever even heard of, it makes logical sense that I should use it from time to time to teach and inform myself about 80s movies that I've never seen and have always been somewhat curious about. So today, I'll be talking about Nick Castle's little scene and even less remembered action comedy thriller from 1982, The Assassination Game. Nicholas Charles Castle Jr. was born into show business. His dad, Nick Castle Sr., was a top choreographer for motion pictures, television shows, and on Broadway. And it would be at a very young age that Nick Jr., who regularly appeared in small roles in the movies and shows his dad worked on, would decide he would want to become a part of the motion picture business himself. After graduating from high school in 1966, Castle would start to attend the University of Southern California, becoming a part of the legendary School of Cinematic Arts. At USC, he would meet a number of his future collaborators, including John Carpenter. In 1969, as a third-year student, Castle would co-write a student short film with Carpenter called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which would win an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film in 1970. Shortly after that Oscar win for their film, Castle would help Carpenter and fellow USC student Dan O'Bannon as a camera assistant on what was intended to be Carpenter's graduate thesis film for USC, a science fiction comedy called Dark Star. With a budget of only $1,000, the team would spend several weeks around Los Angeles shooting their little epic. The final 45-minute film would be a big hit with their fellow USC film students, and the strong reception would get Carpenter and O'Bannon thinking that there might be enough there for a full-length feature film. After graduating from film school, the guys would go about raising another $5,000 from a Canadian investor in order to shoot another 45 minutes in the fall of 1971, as most distributors won't even bother with a film that's shorter than 85 minutes. The new version of the now full-length feature would screen for potential distributors towards the end of 1971 and would attract the attention of Jack H. Harris, whose producing credits included the original 1958 version of The Blob. Harris had started his own distribution company and had been looking for a science fiction film to distribute and felt Darkstar was something that the hippie counterculture could embrace. Harris would give Carpenter and his team another 60000 to reshoot about a half hour of footage that he felt was boring and unusable. And a third round of shooting on the film would happen during the summer of 1973. In April 1974, the final 83-minute version of the movie would make its world premiere at the FilmX Film Festival in Los Angeles. 
And while the film got some decent reviews out of the festival, Jack Harris soured on the film and sold it to a distributor called Bryanston Pictures. The name Bryanston Pictures will be familiar to fans of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as they were the ones who would release Toby Hooper's classic horror film. But their most famous release was also their first, a $22,000 porno film called Deep Throat, which would gross more than $30 million in theaters. Bryanston first released Darkstar in 43 theaters and drive-ins in Los Angeles on January 15, 1975. But the grosses weren't that good, and the film would soon be abandoned by the distributor. Darkstar would be rescued from semi-obscurity a few years later when, after being forced to declare bankruptcy when the feds went after several of the major players at Bryanston for distributing obscenity across state lines, Darkstar was purchased by Atlantic Releasing out of bankruptcy court. In reality, the feds were going after the Colombo crime family member Anthony Big Tony Periano and his sons Louis and Joseph who were president and vice president of Bryanston Pictures, because the feds were having trouble making other charges stick. Carpenter and Castle would work together again a few years later, when Castle would play The Shape, also known as Michael Myers, in Carpenter's breakthrough film, Halloween. Castle would be on a bit of a hot streak himself in the late 70s, having written the screenplays for the 1979 roller disco movie Skate Town USA, and the 1980 televangelist comedy K-God with Dabney Coleman. This run would give Castle enough cachet in Hollywood to make his directorial debut with a screenplay he had spent most of 1980 writing. That screenplay, which he titled The Assassination Game, was based on something he had heard from a friend that fascinated him. On dozens of college and university campuses nationwide, there had been a game that had become the latest craze for students. The game was simple. Each contestant would pay in a small stipend, two or three dollars, to the game organizers, and they would be given toy pistols that shot rubber darts. Every day, they would receive a quote-unquote victim card with the name, a Polaroid photo, and some basic information about the person that each player was tasked to take out. The person who successfully tags their victim first wins the round and gets to take back their own victim card from the person they just took out. If you survive that round, you get another victim card the next day. And like the NCAA sports ball tournament, 64 becomes 32, becomes 16, and so on until there are only two assassins left. Whoever takes out the other person wins. Castle's script would take things a little bit farther. When the five-time assassination game champion is taken out by a cruel twist of fate by a not-very-elegant player in a dorm room shower, that player loses it and decides to start using a real gun and real ammo to really take out his competition round by round. What Castle didn't know at the time when he came up with this little twist is that campus police at Columbia University in New York City had actually busted a player who really was carrying around a real loaded pistol while playing the game at that school. Producers Kate Edelman and Jean Yuvoud, who had recently started their own production company, would get a hold of a copy of the screenplay and offered Castle the chance to direct the film. They had originally budgeted $1 million for the film, but they were able to raise nearly $3 million from a series of independent investors. 
Castle would cast a number of young actors, many who would either be making their first movies in a major role or appearing in their first movie altogether. Robert Carradine, the younger brother of actors David Carradine and Keith Carradine, would be the most seasoned actor in the cast, having already appeared in a number of movies over the previous decade. His love interest in the film would be a young actress making her first movie in a leading role, Linda Hamilton. Bruce Abbott, who had recently moved to Hollywood from San Francisco and the American Conservatory Theater to break into movies, would be making his film debut as the villain. And a number of other future stars would be a part of the film, including Xander Berkeley, Perry Lang, Forrest Whitaker, and Michael Winslow. The film would also feature Christine DeBell, who had already been featured alongside Bill Murray and Meatballs and Jackie Chan in The Big Brawl, as well as popular local Los Angeles rock station DJ Fraser Smith. Ironically, for a director who learned his craft at USC, the film would mostly be shot on the campus of crosstown rival UCLA, beginning production on April 8, 1981, for a four month shoot. New World Pictures, the company founded by Roger Corman in 1970, after he left American Independent Pictures, would purchase the distribution rights to the film at the end of 1981 and set a spring 1982 release. They would start promoting the film by hosting a screening at UCLA's Royce Hall on April 13, 1982, with guest appearances by Nick Castle and Robert Carradine. The film, under the simpler title Tag, would open on 47 screens in Los Angeles and another 18 in various areas of the southwestern United States 10 days later on Friday, April 23rd. But apparently it did so poorly, New World didn't release the grosses. All we have is the trade magazine Variety's listing of the 14 major theaters the film played in in Los Angeles, with a listed opening weekend gross of $37,000. That, and the fact that of the 47 theaters that did play it in the first week in Los Angeles, only three kept it for a second week, and two of them had it as the B title of a double feature. And it would be gone from those three theaters after that second week. What New World did after that is kind of a blur. There were posters created for the movie with titles like Kiss Me, Kill Me, and Everybody Gets It in the End, but the only other play dates I've been able to find for the movie were two theaters in Honolulu that played it under the full title Tag, The Assassination Game, and one theater called the Cinema West 1 and 2 Somewhere that played the film as everybody gets it in the end. But there are no dates attached for those showings. For that last theater, the other film listed as being shown that week was The House on Sorority Row, which, like many independently released horror films in the early 80s, would first be given a regional theatrical release before going out wide a few months later. So it's possible that Everybody Gets It in the End play date could have happened in January 1983, when House on Sorority Row finally did open in wide release. The movie would come out on home video from Embassy Home Entertainment in late 1983 with a suggested retail price of $59.95, a real bargain back then, and made the rounds on a number of pay and free cable channels throughout the rest of the decade. But by the end of the 80s, it was mostly forgotten, outside of mentions of it being a lot like another 80s movie called Gotcha, with Linda Fiorentino and Anthony Edwards. So now that I've told you about the movie, what did I think about it? 
And, you know, it's not that bad. It's clear Castle was paying attention in his film appreciation classes, and he has a deep appreciation of film noir and James Bond movies. The transfer I watched on a popular online video sharing site was a not very good transfer from a mid-1980s videotape, which appears to have not been properly color-balanced. Too many of the night scenes are extremely dark, even for a film that is actively trying to be a modern version of a Sam Spade story, if Sam Spade was a college newspaper reporter. Robert Carradine has top billing, but he's really not in the film all that much. Since most of the actors were literal no-names at the time, it's easy to see why a distributor would lean hard on his recognizable name. As I said before, it was the first film for both Linda Hamilton and Bruce Abbott, and they would fall in love during the making of the film and get married soon after its release. Although it's not clear what kind of actress Hamilton was going to be in 1982, Abbott's clearly got an ideal of what kind of actor he's going to be, which he would fully embrace in the years to come, thanks in large part to his work with director Stuart Gordon and the 1985 film Reanimator. It's also a sad reminder of how Christine DeBell was never properly used by filmmakers. And it's also sad to see how Michael Winslow got caught in this loop of being the guy who makes all those noises with his mouth. Future Oscar winner Forrest Whitaker shows up for two scenes, and you won't even know it's him until you hear his unmistakable voice. The music by Craig Safan is sometimes a little too spot-on for a wannabe film noir, and sometimes it's reminiscent of a cheap TV movie. The pace of the film is pretty tight, and there are some genuine moments of suspense. And while I was doing research for this episode, I learned that Nick Castle is currently working on a 2K restoration of the movie. So hopefully there will be a properly color-balanced Blu-ray release for the film, with a director's commentary and some other fun bonus features in the near future. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movie we covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>